Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are the exhibition's Superheroes in Gotham. If you haven't already seen the Batmobile, that's part of the exhibition. And Silicon City, Computer History Made in New York, and Holiday Express, I'm sure you've seen the Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection. It's great for the families to come back anytime and bring families on the weekend. Um, if you don't already have a brochure, please pick one up. It's chock full of programs that are still coming up for the winter. Film series, we have um, Isabella Rossellini coming with Martin Scorsese's longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, a week from this Friday. We have a great film shop around the corner this Friday, nice for the holidays. So pick this up, and now where is Jim, who's gonna take, okay, thank you, there he is, okay. Um, and so now is the time I always ask, um, how many members we have in the audience tonight? Okay, I have to find people who are not members, okay. So with the holidays coming, think about the gift of membership. And if you're not already a member, we welcome you here and we invite you to be, join the family and become a member. Um, there's wonderful benefits and discounts on our programs and you'll find out all about it. You'll see that this program tonight, the three gentlemen who are with us tonight have been with us for years and it doesn't matter what battle we're talking about, you keep coming, so we're thrilled to have you. The, but the battle tonight is Great Battles of the Civil War, Chancellorville. That's tonight's episode. And it's part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's thank Mr. Schwartz for his support. I'd also like to recognize and thank Lon Jacobs, Suzanne Peck, Carl Mengus, who are also trustees here at New York Historical, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support as well. Let's give them a hand. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and there will be a formal book signing following the program with copies of the speaker's books, which you can purchase in our museum store on the 77th Street side of the building. We are thrilled to welcome back John F. Marzalek to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Marzalek is the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University and the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He is the author or editor of numerous books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, and most recently, The Best Writings of Ulysses S. Grant. We are also so pleased to welcome back James M. McPherson, the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus, at Princeton University and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. 
Dr. McPherson is the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He is the two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. Our moderator for the evening is Harold Holzer, chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He is the author, co-editor, or editor of 51, there's another one added, 51 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, including his latest, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, which was the recipient of the prestigious Gilder Lamb and Lincoln Prize. Mr. Holzer served as content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film, Lincoln, and served as the Roger Hertog Fellow for three years here at New York Historical Society. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush. He also is tremendously helpful and works with me on planning programs throughout the years on the Civil War and other programs. Um, I want to thank you especially, Harold, for that. And now, um, before I welcome to the stage, if you have a cell phone or a device that beeps, please turn it off for the duration of the program. And now, please welcome our wonderful guests. Thank you. Well, good evening. Um, it's great to be back at the New York Historical Society. It is very hard to believe that there actually is a battle that this trio has yet to uh, cover in our ongoing series. I hope it's ongoing. We have at least one more battle to talk about um, here at the Historical Society. We have two this season. And we thank you for, for joining us. So as you heard, the subject is the Battle of Chancellorsville. It's hard to say, um, especially for a New Yorker, Chancellorsville. Um, but before we get there, uh, we have to cover a little bit of the terrain. Um, it's a neglected battle in and of itself, but it has so many links to what came before and what came after that we wanted to do some context. Um, Jim, well, if I can start with you, the battle was uh, preceded by quite a few months of quiet in, in the winter of 1862-63. But things had changed, as I will show you here, because in early 1863, recruitment of African Americans for the Union Army begins following the Emancipation Proclamation and some legislation. So much has changed. Uh, just give, set the scene for us, uh, the, chronologically. Well, one thing that had been going on during the winter of 1862-63 was a, uh, a decline in morale uh, in the Northern armies, especially the Army of the Potomac, and also uh, in Northern public opinion after the dispiriting defeat at Fredericksburg in December. Uh, and there was a, a increasing uh, concern with manpower in the Union armies. Uh, attrition, desertions were high during the winter, casualties in uh, the terrible battles that had taken place in the summer, fall, and winter uh, preceding. Uh, there had been a, a growing effort 
uh, to uh, bring about the uh, abolition of slavery. Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation and accompanying the uh, pressure for uh, emancipation was uh, a growing conviction that the uh, freed slaves constituted an important reservoir of manpower for Union armies. Uh, pressure from the abolitionists, from radical Republicans, and increasingly uh, most members of the Republican Party, including uh, by the winter uh, President Lincoln himself, so, who had initially uh, been somewhat lukewarm toward the idea of black soldiers, but had become a convert uh, to that. And in fact, in uh, March of 1863, he writes a letter to Andrew Johnson, who's his military governor of Tennessee, uh, urging Johnson to um, uh, become active in the recruitment of uh, black soldiers from among the freed slaves uh, in central Tennessee. Uh, and he said, uh, if we could put 50,000 uh, black soldiers in uniform, it would uh, bring about an end to the war almost at once. Uh, so Lincoln is now a, a strong uh, convert to that. Uh, Congress is uh, uh, debating a bill to recruit black soldiers. Uh, Secretary of War Stanton establishes a Bureau of Colored Troops in the War Department. Uh, he sends uh, Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas to the Mississippi Valley, uh, where occupied by Union forces, uh, with instructions to begin recruiting black troops in that area, which uh, had, uh, had tens of thousands of freed slaves. And so this is getting off the, uh, getting off the mark uh, to enlist black soldiers. And indeed, uh, within six months of uh, Lincoln's letter to Andrew Johnson, uh, there were pretty close, uh, in March of 1863, there were pretty close to about 50,000 black troops in blue uniform by the fall of 1863. Which, as we know from what we're about to discuss, did not stop the war in its tracks. No, not at all. Um, John, we... we, we Talk to us briefly about another sea change, uh, the draft, uh, military conscription, which is another new element. And then we can, if you'd like, I hope you do, move into what is on the screen now, which is the Battle of Fredericksburg. Important for us to consider because um, it covers part of the same terrain that will be covered five months later at the Battle of Chancellorsville. Draft, draft first. Thing. Right. The, uh, the thing that I, uh, struck me what Jim Jim said um, about the coming of, of black troops, and sometimes we in in modern 21st century America, you know, will think, well, of course this is going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. In fact, there was a tremendous amount of uh, resistance to this idea, uh, the idea that. You, you would give a weapon to a black man. You know, we wouldn't think much of it today, but that whole concept really was, was very concerning. And it was, I think, uh, Jim's point, it, it was one of the reasons why people weren't so sure what was gonna be going on in 1863. You know, what does this mean that we're really reaching a, a point where we have to, have to bring in these what were considered inferior people? And when you consider what happened here in, in New York City with the draft riots after this time, not, not at this time, but later on, you get some idea of the feeling uh, that the average American had toward uh, soldiers, toward black soldiers. 
But it happened. But we'll 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 get compounded by resentment because of the draft. Right, and the draft was that was another. Uh, yes, obviously the draft. And again, it's hard for us to imagine this. Although I think you could you could think that if President Obama today said we're going to bring back the draft because we have this major uh, conflict in in Syria and the Middle East, etc. What do you think the reaction of the American public would be to that? I think it would be pretty negative, to put it to put it uh, to put it mildly. So you have that happening. And does this also mean that things are going so badly for the union side that they have to do this? And then you throw in Fredericksburg. Right. Uh, Fredericksburg is 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 one of those battles that had an enormous psychological impact on the American people, on the people in the North, well, on the people in the South in a different way, too. But Fredericksburg saw an absolute slaughter. I, I don't think you can put it any other way. And then when the battle is over, then the, the, the commanding general, General Burnside, wants to do it again. And here is Burnside. Yeah. In all his hirsute glory. I, was, I always say that John and I to take attention away from the obvious should grow sideburns like burns. Just like, just like that. And that's where the name sideburns came, by the way. That's, that's right. So for, he leads the disastrous Battle of Fredericksburg, and then what happens afterwards, which then, is a mud march. Right. I mean, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of difficult... Poor Lincoln. I mean, I can't imagine what he must have been... Well, I know what, I guess what he was going through, but he turns to... His chief of what later on will become his chief of staff, Henry Halleck, and said, Halleck, what should I do in regard to this plan of Burnside? And uh, Burn, uh, Halleck responds, well, that's not up to me. It's up to the generals in the field to make their decision. Burnside, good, old, good old Halleck was always there old, to help him with the decision. Good old Halleck. And, and then, of course, even Burnside says to Halleck, please help me, give me your advice. He simply will not do it. But to make a long story short, and it's already a long story, um, but Burnside comes up with the idea of a campaign in the winter. You say, well, why not? It's a little cold and all that. Except it's also muddy. It's also difficult to move around. It's terrible if you're a, if you're a soldier trying to uh, work with that uh, with that cold. And it, the result is the mud march, which is an absolute disaster. And it's because of that that we have some changes made right. that I know Harold's going to tell us about. Well, Jim, back to you. Um, Burnside wants loses the, the Battle of Fredericksburg. He's still in command. He wants a second chance at. Robert E. Lee, but his staff, to whom Halleck thinks he should turn, is not very sanguine about his ability to lead. So tell us what happens even more cripplingly, if that's a word, with the morale of the, of the leadership of the, of the Army of the Potomac. Well, when Burnside comes up with his plan for a new campaign uh, against the Confederate defenders at Fredericksburg, uh, at the end of December, uh, a lot of the um, corps commanders and division commanders within the army are not uh, do not support this, and one of them in particular, William B. Franklin, uh, who was a McClellan man, and in fact was intrigued <coughs> behind the scenes to bring McClellan back to command uh, of the army, uh, sends two of his subordinates, two of his division commanders, to Washington 
and they seek an interview with Lincoln and and uh, tell Lincoln that Burnside is is uh, coming up, is planning this new campaign and that it'll be a disaster again. And Lincoln sends word to Burnside to suspend the campaign. Burnside suspects uh, what has happened, that one of his principal subordinates has gone behind his back. Uh, he comes to Washington. Uh, he meets with uh, Lincoln and Halleck. In fact, uh, they meet on December 31st and again on January 1st. Uh, Burnside um, is angry. Uh, he goes back uh, after this conference, which leads nowhere. Uh, and uh, plans the campaign that leads to the mud march, but he also, after the, after the fiasco of the mud march, um, is so um, angry about the discord within the ranking generals in the Army of the Potomac that he writes out orders firing several of them. Mm -hmm. Franklin, in particular, Joe Hooker, who has been making noises behind the scenes, well, more than behind the scenes, <laughs> openly to newspaper reporters that uh, uh, Burnside is, is a disaster. Uh, the, the government, uh, Halleck and uh, Stanton, Halleck the General-in-Chief, Stanton the Secretary of War, ought to be fired. And what this country needs, Hooker said, is a dictator. Uh, well, uh, Burnside doesn't like this. He, so he issues orders uh, dismissing, cashiering, uh, about a half dozen generals right. led by Hooker and Franklin. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Lincoln, Lincoln says, that you can't do that. Now, you know, I'm commander-in-chief, and I point generals and fire generals. I always uh, like to remind people that uh, my man, Henry Raymond, the editor of the New York Times, was with the Army of the Potomac for some bizarre reason when, I think it was order number eight, was issued firing the staff. And so he takes a copy and rushes back to Washington and shows it to Lincoln yeah. to incite him against, as he should have been, against, against Burnside. Well, when, when Lincoln uh, revokes Burnside's order, Burnside offers his resignation, and Lincoln finally decides, all right, I'm going to have to accept this resignation. And then, lo and behold, uh, he appoints Joe Hooker as commander right. of the Army. But John and Jim, remind every, everybody, and the reason I'm spending so much time with context here uh, is because all of this is crucially important um, to know what's happening behind the scenes, to know about the turmoil in the general staff, the recent disaster, black troops on the horizon, the draft, it's all part of what leads up to what is gonna be Hooker's great triumph at Chancellorsville. Mm -hmm. If you've read ahead, you know that may not be true. <laughs> but let's spend a minute about the political crisis facing Lincoln at that time. John, do you, or Jim, do you wanna weigh in on that? Well, uh, in the days after Fredericksburg, uh, when um, the newspaper editorials were saying that things are going to hell, uh, there ought to be a, a change in the government, a uh, change in the army. Things are uh, just terrible. Uh, as the, the Republican senators uh, get together in a caucus uh, and, and say, we've got to do something. Uh, the government is falling apart. The country is falling apart. Uh, the problem really is that uh, the heart of some of the members of the cabinet, and particularly Secretary of State William H. Seward, are not in this cause. There were rumors that Seward had really opposed the Emancipation Proclamation, which was partly true, but not entirely true. Uh, and so they wanted to uh, get rid of Seward uh, and maybe force a reorganization of the cabinet entirely. Uh, and so they, see, they uh, seek an interview with Lincoln. 
uh, say that Seward has lost the confidence of the country, uh, and maybe some other cabinet members have lost the confidence of the country, and we think you ought to reorganize uh, your administration. Uh, well, that creates a political crisis in Washington. If Lincoln had bowed to this pressure, he would have lost, uh, he would have give, yielded power to a, a clique of, of Republican senators in the United States Senate. Uh, and uh, the newspapers are full of reports that uh, the, the administration is collapsing, uh, that there'll be a wholesale change in, in the cabinet. Maybe even Lincoln will resign. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were rumors to that effect. And Lincoln says... We're and, and, and Lincoln actually yeah. tells one of his confidence, uh, Senator Browning from Illinois is the one Republican senator who does not take part in this uh, uh, attempted coup, really, is what it demands to, uh, that maybe uh, these, these people want to get rid of him and maybe I should oblige them by resigning. Well, Lincoln resolves it through uh, political acumen. Uh, he calls the um, uh, cabinet together and, uh, and the senators uh, all meet with the government and the cabinet. He polls uh, the cabinet uh, about whether they uh, are all united behind this, the cause and uh, behind the administration policy. Secretary of the Treasury Chase had been telling the senators that uh, Lincoln doesn't really consult his cabinet. Uh, the cabinet is divided. Uh, Lincoln... Uh, calls on one member after another, including Chase, uh, and they all say, no, we aren't divided. Uh, we know what we're doing, uh, and uh, the senators have to back down. And, and Lincoln uh, has Seward's resignation in hand, and he gets Chase's re resignation, and Lincoln, uh, uh, with typical uh, use of metaphor, he says, now I have a pumpkin in each of my bags and I can ride. Uh, <laughs> and so he, he refuses both rec uh, resignations. The cabinet remains the same, uh, and this crisis passed, uh, passes. But the fact that there was a crisis is an indication of the, uh, the, the mood of demoralization, uh, at least in Washington and across much of the North as well. Well, I wonder if we could add, just add to that, too, that uh, something I mentioned, I think, before, but Halleck is supposed to be the general that Lincoln, well, Lincoln brought him on because he wanted a military man who would give him military advice. In Washington, right? In Washington. He wanted him, he wanted him by his side. And, and Halleck takes the position, uh, I think as we mentioned, that it's not up to me, it's up to the generals in the field. I can give them advice up to a point, but I can't make them do anything. And Lincoln becomes very frustrated over that situation, to just what am I going to do? And then when we get into the, 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 uh, the coming of fighting Joe Hooker, as he, as he was called, uh, Halleck is not happy because he knows Hooker from California and is not too thrilled with him. Lincoln is not particularly happy with him, but they've got to have somebody. Who can we pick? Who so can I choose? Here's here's Hooker. He certainly looks the part. Tell us tell us about him aside from his California sojourn. Tell us about fighting Joe Hooker. Fighting Joe Hooker, and just to digress a little bit, the the nickname Fighting Joe Hooker is not because of anything he particularly did, but because of what Harold, some of Harold's friends, uh, did in the press. Uh, he was involved in a battle, and the headline was Fighting. First line, second line, 
Joe Hooker. <laughs> and somebody forgot about the dash, and then from then on, he was fighting Joe Hooker. Um, he also had a reputation, and it's one of those one of those things that it's difficult to to really pin down. But this is why Halleck didn't like him from the California days that he drank too much. Uh, that Hooker just simply drank too much. And the result was he didn't do the kind of things that Halleck thought ought to be done by a, by a prim and proper uh, a general or gentleman, uh, as, the case, uh, as the case may be. But Hooker is an intriguing sort of a guy. Harold pointed out that he, he's working behind the scenes to get Burnside out. But at the same time, he's pretty, pretty, uh, he's, a, he's a, 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 an individual who knows his trade. And he takes over the Army of the Potomac and he sees immediately that it's a mess. And so he spends a lot of time reorganizing, doing simple things like making sure the troops are fed, making sure that the, that the kitchens where the food is being produced, if that's what's happening when they're in, in, uh, in, uh, in a situation where they're on the march, make sure that they're hygienic, that the hospitals are. He does the kinds of things, and he lets the boys go off on furlough at the appropriate times. So he does some good things. He organizes some good things. And as we're going to talk about, I guess, in a few minutes, the first plan he comes up, comes up with for Chancellorsville is not a bad plan. It, it could have worked, but there were some issues. Well, my, my prayer... Final prelude comment before we get to that plan and what mm -hmm. and whether it was uh, a good one. And you know he is a fighter. He wants he doesn't want political intrigue the way McClellan did. He wants to fight. We have right. to give him that. Um, and he's a fairly good organizer. He's also and I you left this out certainly compared to your friend General Halleck. He's rather dashing. And, yes, he is. And um, yes, yes. you know he he um, not a good picture by the way, Harold. Mm -hmm. That's, um, you know it's not a great picture. No. I wouldn't call this dashing here. Um, it, well, compared it, to Halleck, he looks. But compared to, <laughs> compared to the three people on the platform, he looks pretty dashing here too. So, so Lincoln gets wind of the fact that he has got this idea of becoming a conquering hero and dictator. And I just want to segue for a moment into the fact that Lincoln writes one of one. his most famous letters to Hooker, which I want to quote hearing the rumors that Hooker is, uh, wants to be the dictator of the country once he succeeds, Lincoln writes, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up dictators. Mm. Beware of rashness, but with energy and sleepless vigilance, go forward and give us victories. Yeah. Sort of an open letter. You want to be a dictator? Come earn it. Um, and and it's by the way, it was a put down of Hooker, but uh, Hooker treasured that letter. He said he carried it with him throughout the campaigns. Um, but I, I think another thing that has to be pointed out too, when Lincoln appoints Halleck to to his position as commander of the Army of the Potomac, Hooker. Uh, what did I say? You, as usual, you said Halleck. I said Halleck. <laughs> Hooker, Hooker, the guy here, the good-looking guy in, in front of me. Um, but when, when he appoints Hooker uh, to, uh, to, this, uh, to this position, he, he, he lets him report directly to the president. 
He does not have mm -hmm. to report to Alec. And that creates some other issues right. as time goes on. And then that helps us into the next image I want to show, which is a, a raw sketch by one of the great uh, artist correspondents of the Civil War of Lincoln visiting the Army of the Potomac at Falmouth, Virginia, riding in a military procession. The, the blank there is supposed to be Hooker, and you see Hooker's body riding alongside him. But the artist probably didn't get it as you know, as good as he wanted it to be, so he was going to redo it. This is an extraordinary relic. But w is that also unusual, gentlemen, that Lincoln goes down to talk about the plan that Hooker is formulating for going back to the same area? Well, I, I'll just just add a couple to give Jim a chance, but it, it, Lincoln is, is trying through, I, I, my view of Lincoln is as he, at the beginning of the war, he's saying, I don't know anything about fighting. I don't know anything about the military, so I need these generals who know their stuff around me. But as the war goes on, Lincoln comes to see that he knows more than his generals. Right. And so he starts, so yeah, I think uh, this is certainly, probably Jim, you wanna? Well, it's not at all unusual for Lincoln because he right. visited yeah. the Army of the Potomac 11 different times during the course of the war. Right. Um, and uh, this was one of those 11 times. Well, it's, it's before four or five of them. So it's like up to about six at this point, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, in, 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 yeah. in uh, April 63. And, and as John said, uh, by this stage of the war, Lincoln is, uh, is taking a hands-on uh, mm -hmm. role as commander-in-chief. He was commander-in-chief in name, but also in, in actual fact by this stage of the war. Uh, and of course, uh, earlier on, as I said a few moments ago, he had actually vetoed uh, one of Burnside's plans so it's not unusual for Lincoln to consult with his generals. Uh, he meets with uh, Hooker and uh, some of his corps commanders when he visits the army at Falmouth in, in uh, April uh, of 1863. Uh, and as he departs uh, to go back to Washington after talking over with Hooker his plan for this campaign, uh, he tells uh, Hooker and uh, Darius Couch, who's the senior corps commander at that time, uh, next time, gentlemen, put in all your men, uh, because uh, that had been a chronic problem with the Army of the Potomac, is that uh, piecemeal attacks, right. rather than putting in all their men in a coordinated attack, that had been true at Antietam, had been true at Fredericksburg. So, so, so Hooker says, either before or after this visit, and do this very dramatically, there is a distinguished-looking man. For, um, may God have mercy on uh, General Lee. So we do have to remember there is an opponent. Because I shall have none, none. yeah. So still formidable for all of his aches and pains and um, angina, whatever he was suffering at this time, still formidable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he is. And, and in thinking about this, uh, this program tonight, it just struck me that if you, if you look at Lee and you look at Hooker, and somebody was to ask, somebody like Harold Holzer was to ask us, well, how would you characterize these people? I would think that Lee you could characterize as audacious, and Hooker you'd characterize as hesitant, because if you look at what we, we're going to talk about this battle, uh, Lee does, does all sorts of things that, by all modern, by all standards of that military standards of that time, you shouldn't be doing. You shouldn't be dividing your army that way. And then you have Hooker, who comes up with a decent plan, but then as soon as he gets some opposition, he backs 
away from it. Well, we ought to get to it. So what, this, is, this is supposed to be the Battle of the Chancellors. So what is, what is happening here in, in May 1863? He's going, crossing the river, getting back, trying to get back the territory that Burnside had lost. Is that essentially? Well, you know, the, the idea, throughout this time, the idea is to capture Richmond. All we got to do is capture Richmond. It'll all be taken care of. It'll all be over. Lincoln is already growing. It's already come to the realization. It's not the geographic capital. It's the army. We've got to destroy the Confederate uh, Confederate army. And in this particular case, the, the failure at Fredericksburg having this enormous impact on people, Halleck comes up with a plan of basically doing the same thing, cutting off briefly cutting off uh, Lee's army and forcing him back, actually, or getting around behind him and cutting him off from Richmond. So Richmond will then fall and Hooker will be a hero and everybody will live happily ever after. But it doesn't, doesn't work out that way. Uh, Hooker's plan for, a, for an envelopment, if he'd have continued it, I think had a good chance of, uh, of working. But as soon as Lee makes a counter movement, Hooker stops. He starts digging in. And it's interesting, though, because we criticize him for that, and I do, uh, for digging in instead of continuing on the offensive. But Stephen Sears, who's written probably the best book uh, on Chancellorsville and on Hooker and all, makes the argument that really Hooker was doing the right thing by setting up a defensive perimeter and forcing Lee to attack him. But you can also argue that by stopping, Hooker gives up the initiative, gives the initiative to Lee, and then Lee has control of that battle. So it depends how you look at it. Yeah, so Jim, why, I, I think why is it, and we need to know, why is it called Lee's masterpiece in the end? Well, I, I think we need to back up a little bit before we can get to that um, and talk about what Hooker's plan was. Uh, Hooker's, uh, the Army of the Potomac outnumbers Lee at, at uh, Chancellorsville nearly two to one. Uh, Lee had sent two of his divisions under Longstreet uh, south of the James River to carry on a campaign against Suffolk, uh, Virginia. And so uh, some, of the, uh, some of the best troops in the Army of Northern Virginia were not with Lee at Fredericksburg. Mm -hmm. He had only about 60,000 men there. And Hooker comes up with a fairly complicated plan, which of all the parts work, uh, smoothly is going to, uh, has, on paper, has great promise. He sends most of his cavalry uh, on a deep raid behind the Union, behind the Confederate lines to tear up the railroads between Fredericksburg uh, and Richmond and interrupt Lee's uh, uh, source of supply. Uh, and then he sends out, uh, sends uh, uh, two-thirds of his infantry up the, up the Rappahannock River uh, to cross at the fords uh, 10 or 15 miles from Fredericksburg, above Fredericksburg on the river, to come in behind uh, the Confederates at Fredericksburg, rather than try to assault them from the front the way Burnside had done at, back at in December. Yeah. And he leaves uh, one-third of his armies there at Fredericksburg to threaten uh, the Confederates there. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a classic envelopment maneuver. And for the first uh, two or three days, it works perfectly. Perfectly. Uh, he gets to <coughs> two-thirds of the army across the Potomac River, uh, across the Rappahannock River, I'm sorry, uh, and they come in behind Lee. Uh, they're marching toward Lee's rear at Fredericksburg, 
They get two miles or so beyond Chancellorsville, and Chancellorsville not a really a town. It's just a uh, mm-hmm. it's a plantation mm-hmm. owned by the Chancellor family. Uh, it's a crossroads. Uh, there's a large plantation at the crossroads. When Hooker stops, because he runs into enemy troops, Confederate troops, rather than uh, when Hooker issues the orders to his army for this envelopment move, he, he says that uh, the enemy must, uh, we will attack the enemy and he must ingloriously fly. He expects, uh, when Lee is confronted with this uh, envelopment, by superior number, Hooker has about 110,000 men, Lee has only 60,000, that Lee would be forced to retreat to the North Anna River and make a stand there rather than to stand and fight. But instead, Lee decides to confront Hooker with uh, about three-quarters of his army, leaving with four-fifths of it, leaving behind only about 10,000 troops at Fredericksburg and marching west under Jackson uh, to uh, meet with the Hookers, uh, with the Army of the Potomac coming in on his rear. When that happens, Hooker stops. Did he not expect that he'd have any opposition as he marched? He expected Lee to retreat. Yeah, right. just at the sight of 100. Yeah, right. when when he saw that that Lee was going to be trapped between, between uh, the 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 uh, hammer and the anvil, that's basically what what what, right. what Hooker was doing. Uh, and instead, Lee doesn't retreat. Uh, he sends uh, 45,000 or so of his troops uh, to confront uh, Hooker. Uh, and and uh, and leaves uh, just a ten thousand or twelve thousand under Jubal Early uh, at Chancellorsville, uh, and and when Hooker sees this, rather than smashing through those troops, uh, which is what he should have done, uh, he retreats back to Chancellorsville and sends up a defensive perimeter. Stephen Sears says, you know, that's that's what he should have done, but I don't agree with Sears. And neither did uh, the Corps commanders under Hooker. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Meade, uh, Darius Couch, uh, um, the, the other, the, the other uh, John Reynolds, other Corps commanders, they thought that they had Lee trapped in this vice uh, and that they should smash him. Uh, but Hooker says, no, we're going to pull back into a defensive perimeter and he yields the initiative to Lee, uh, and I, I don't I don't agree with Sears at all on. That. I was going to apologize for the absence of maps to show these positions, but if Jim McPherson is here, you don't need a map. He has <laughs> held the descriptions are so vivid. And then let's let's bring um, this man into the mix, John uh, Stonewall Jackson's part in in uh, outmaneuvering the Army of the Potomac. Okay, yeah, Stonewall Jackson, uh, the idea, and again, Jim knows the details better, and certainly better than anybody does, I know. But uh, what Lee does is divides his army, and he sends, well, back up a little bit, uh, Lee and Stonewall Jackson are having a conference trying to decide what they're going to do, and they look at the, the right flank of the Union Army, and that's, that's anchored on the Rappahannock River. But then they look on the right flank of the Union Army and they see that it is in the air. It's not anchored to anything. Now, the, the man, O.O. Howard, who is in charge of the 11th Corps, believes, I think, uh, that he really is anchored in those woods that nobody can get through. But what basically happens in this battle is just 
about two miles, two and a half miles in front of the Union line, Stonewall Jackson moves his troops around and smashes into the end, the right flank of the, of the uh, Union position. And it's what they, uh, they talk about in naval parlance as crossing the T. You know, this is what happens. And he rolls up the 11th Corps under, uh, uh, under Howard for about two miles. But here's where I think we, we begin to have a little confusion because most people, when they look at the Battle of Chancellorville, say, that's it, it's all over. Stonewall Jackson's made the thing, everything's fine, and Lee has won the battle. But there's a great deal more to this that has to happen. This, this thing that Jim was talking about, uh, and again, not getting into too much detail, but, but you have two sides of the, of the Confederate Army, and they're separated by nine miles. They've got to come back together, or Hooker, as Jim said, can smash into the one and smash into the other one. Uh, but that, that doesn't happen because what does Hooker do? He backs up and he allows the Confederates to come together again. Now, this is where I, was, I, I didn't explain myself very well in, in uh, respect to Stephen Sears. He's talking about that, you know, that gap when they bring the gap together. He says, and I'd be curious to see what you think, that actually at that point, at that point, the Confederates were outmanning Hooker by something like 36,000 to 24,000. And he thinks pulling back at that time was the thing to do. I, I agree with what you said, but I'm just curious what, uh, how you react to that. Well, he's counting. It's a, <laughs> it, 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 it's a, it's a question of who you're counting. Uh, <laughs> by saying that Hooker has only 24,000 men, he means in a particular area right. Hooker has 110,000 right, right, men. Right, right, right. Uh, and he's got three Army Corps um, in a good position. This is on May 1st now, we're backing up right, on May 1st, right, when right. Hooker decides to stop. Uh, he, he, he could have, um, I think, brought his three corps together, which would have been outnumbered, the, yeah, the, yeah. the Jackson uh, and those troops. Uh, I think, uh, but uh, he decides that uh, some of those troops, <laughs> the ones on the main road, are outnumbered by the Confederates. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what that's he's well. counting. Yeah. Uh, what happens uh, after Jackson, to, to, to pick up Jackson's flank attack, which happens uh, late afternoon of May 2nd, and routes the 11th Corps, uh, that eventually uh, is brought to a stop uh, at darkness, mm -hmm. but Jackson wants to keep up <clears throat> the the pressure, uh, and he takes a few staff members. It's a there's a full moon that night. It's a clear night, full moon, uh, and rides ahead to scout out the Union position, uh, because what Jackson wants to do is to continue the attack and cut off the Union forces from their uh, from their pontoon bridges and fords over the Rappahannock River. Uh, by a night action, which is very rare in the Civil War, mm -hmm. but remember, we do have a full moon. Uh, but that turns out to be a tragic mistake for, for the Confederates and for Jackson himself, because as he's riding back toward his own lines in the, in the uh, moonlit night, uh, a, a, a regiment of North Carolina troops, which had earlier been charged by some Union cavalry, there's still a few Union cavalry left behind when the main body of them had gone on this raid, 
uh, they'd been they'd been charged earlier by Union cavalry, so they were kind of nervous. And when they heard these horsemen riding from the direction of the Union lines, they fire at them, and, and two the, bullets hit Jackson. Here's the moment, as perhaps oversimplistic. Yeah, it makes it, it makes it a lot lighter than it really yeah. was. Yeah, that picture. <laughs> but there's Jackson falling, as you see. Yeah. And yeah, he um, falls off his horse. Uh, he, they take him to the rear. They amputate his arm. While he's being, car while he's being carried to the rear, uh, a shell uh, explodes nearby, kills one of the litter bearers, uh, and they drop him. Uh, and that, that is what actually wound up killing Jackson, not, not the uh, bullet and the amputation of the arm, uh, because from the shock of, of being dropped on the ground, uh, and and it affected his lungs. He contracts pneumonia right. and dies ten day, uh, nine days later. By the way, this is an over simplistic rendering of the death of Stonewall Jackson. He in fact was taken to a house uh, to die, but well to recover. Um, recover yeah. But Courier and I thought it would be more appropriate if they set up a tent and uh, had his last with his <laughs> with his horse um, looking in. Yeah, and it's also an interesting point that uh, Stonewall Jackson's arm, I think, is the only limb in military history to have its own monument. Yes. It's buried yeah. in, on the battlefield where he allegedly... Right. Him. It's not the arm, it's a monument. It's a, it's a, it's a statue of his... Well, yeah, but no, the one I've seen is just a small little thing saying Stonewall Jackson... Or other. Yeah, well, his arm is buried, and there's a little monument where his arm is buried well, on the actually, battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. Bordering on the macabre. And with that, <laughs> we should ask anybody who has questions to please come up to the microphones at both aisles. Just let me, let me while that's happening, let me add uh, a little bit to kind of bring the um, story of the battle to a conclusion. This happens at Stonewall Jackson on the uh, night of May 2nd. Um, but as John said, the battle is not over. Yeah. And in fact, most right. of the battle is still to happen. Yeah. And yeah. indeed, uh, what happened is that the, the next morning, after some, some fighting that continues that night, the next morning, uh, Lee launches uh, an attack which brings his troops back together on the Union defensive position. And uh, from, from dawn on May 3rd until the Confederates... Uh, break through and drive the Union forces off of their defensive line. Some of the heaviest fighting in the war takes place. Uh, we all know that Antietam was the bloodiest single day in the war. Uh, more, more soldiers were killed and wounded in, uh, in one day at Antietam uh, than any other single day in the war. And but the, the fighting American from military. 6 o'clock yeah. yeah. in the morning on May 3rd until noon that day uh, almost, almost equaled the number of casualties mm -hmm. yeah. at Antietam, which took place in 12 hours, in these six hours. six hours. So some of the heaviest, most intense, most brutal fighting in the entire war took place on the morning of May 3rd. Uh, and that is basically uh, what won the battle for the Confederates. There was some more going on. Back at, Hooker sends word back to General uh, John Sedgwick, uh, who's in charge of the Union troops back at Fredericksburg, to attack in the same place where the uh, Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, had come to grief back on December 13th. But this time it's defended only by 10,000 Confederates. They break through. Hooker's idea is that they will come up on the uh, rear of Lee from that direction now, 
Uh, all of his other plans have, have uh, failed, and he still hopes that he's going to be able to win the victory. Sedgwick uh, uh, makes some progress. He breaks through at Fredericksburg and marches west uh, toward Chancellorsville, but Lee divides his army yet again, again. Yeah. in order to confront uh, uh, Sedgwick and drives him to retreat across the Potomac uh, and then reunites his army against the rest of the army of the Potomac and Hooker decides to retreat across the river. And the reason- The Union did a lot of retreating across the river. Yes, he did. Battle, he did yeah. But the reason it's called Lee's masterpiece is because he repeatedly, as John said, defies the military conventions of, against dividing your army, repeatedly divides his army, sends one part of it, Jackson's flank attack, uh, uh, to uh, uh, attack. Uh, then it re divides, reunites the army, then divides it again to confront Sedgwick, and, and he, he maintains control of, of uh, the, the, the battle through this process because mm -hmm. he sees he initially sees the initiative from Hooker or Hooker yielded to him, uh, and he never lets it go. Yeah. Let's see if we can get some questions in. Thank you for, for a wonderfully enlightening uh, lecture. My question deals with John Sedgwick and George Meade. They both, I understand, were really angry that they were held in, in, uh, in reserve, and I guess Meade probably didn't get much of an action at all. Sedgwick got some, but not what he thought he was going to. And had, they been, had Meade been put into uh, action, would he have been able to trap Jackson? Has Jackson made that attack down Main Street? Quite likely he could have, and in fact that goes back to the um, to the advice that Lincoln had given uh, to Hooker, gentlemen in your next battle, put in all your men. Uh, Hooker, uh, Meade and John Reynolds' division, and uh, uh, part of Winfield Scott Hancock's second corps, I should Reynolds' corps, uh, hardly fired a shot in anger during this battle. Hooker had this majority, uh, this uh, superiority, uh, almost two to one over Lee, but he didn't uh, use two and a half of his own army corps. He didn't use nearly, well, more than a third of his army. Uh, and you're right, quite right that Meade was angry. Um, Darius Couch, who was commander of the second corps, Hancock had a division in it. Uh, I mistakenly said he was commander of the corps, um, as he later was at Gettysburg. Um, yes, they were angry with Hooker because he did not... He did not uh, handle his army in the, in the effective way that Lee was handling his army, and a lot of the Union forces never fired a shot in anger right. at all. And at the same time, we have um, Hooker blaming his corps commanders. For well, he blames Hedgewick. Uh, he Howard, blames his, uh, Howard, right? He calls him an old woman or something. Yeah, well, he also blames, uh, blames Stoneman, who's his cavalry yeah, commander, yeah. Uh, for not, you know. Uh, Hooker is trying to, you know, divert blame from himself. Well, yeah. Uh, I wonder just, uh, I took some, just took some quick notes uh, before I came here tonight, and uh, a very interesting thing, and I think with Jim's comment about the Lee's masterpiece, but look at, listen to these statistics, if you like statistics, but Hooker lost 17,000 men, you know, injured, killed, missing, et cetera, so about 13%. Lee had 60,000 men, he lost 1,200, uh, 12,821, which is 22% of his army. And the, the, the statistic that just blew my mind because I hadn't thought about this before, but the number of killed at Chancellorsville, Hooker lost 1,606, Lee lost 
1,665. So Lee actually lost more troops killed at Chancellorsville than did Hooker. And yet we do we talk about it as a, as a masterpiece because of what uh, what we've a, talked about. A masterpiece with huge with human huge sacrifice. ramifications for the future because that gets us into another topic we can get into. The was Lee did he use his troops in the best way? Mm -hmm. Did he preserve his troops or did he fritter them away over a period of time? But that's let, that's let, time. That's for another. Let's let our, let's let someone ask a question here. Go ahead. I know the personalities are very interesting to talk about, but I've walked the, the battlefield, and uh, it's very difficult to see what anything is. Yeah. And of course, it's the same as the wilderness right. battlefield, very difficult to see. And I wonder how much there is a pattern of operational failure of the Union armies on the offensive in that kind of terrain that could be responsible as well. There's a failure of the, uh, the wilderness that, that goes against Grant, failure at Chancellorsville with timidity, and then if you look at Stones River, same type of terrain, very difficult to see where anything is. There's a turtle effect that happens there at Stones River as well. I wonder if you could comment on that. Let me just say... Well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just say, just say one thing. I think one of the things that we, we just take for granted that everybody knew where everybody was during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they didn't know where they were. And in particular, I think you're right, in that wilderness area, the Confederates knew that terrain better than did the Union troops, who, who really didn't have any decent maps into long uh, into the war. But I, I have to get in one point. Grant fought in that same terrain, and he figured out a way to get through it or get around later. it or whatever. Later. Yeah. Later. Yeah. Jim, Actually, did you want to add anything? Well, uh, um, that, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, much of the Battle of Chancellorsville took place in what was called the wilderness. It's an area in Virginia of second growth uh, pine and, and scrub oak trees, uh, where the first growth had been uh, cut down to create charcoal for the uh, iron smelting industry. And when the second growth grew up, uh, it was very thickly wooded in that area. The soil is, <coughs> is poor soil, poorly drained soil. Uh, and so the visibility is, is very limited. But that actually is another, uh, off, leads to another comment about Hooker. As he, <clears throat> on the first day, May 1st, as his army was moving toward Lee's rear at Fredericksburg, they march out of the wilderness. Yes. Because from about two miles east of Chancellorsville crossroads, the country opens up. Right. It's open farm country, different soil. Uh, and by pulling back into this defensive position uh, on the edge of the wilderness, Hooker, I think, um, creates a, two strikes against himself because Jackson has been able to use the concealment of this thick woods uh, to, to carry out his flank march uh, and then to attack through the woods that Howard thought were impenetrable, but the Confederates find their way through it. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're able to surprise the 11th Corps on May 2nd. And, and what's interesting, too, is that uh, some Union soldiers saw Stonewall Jackson's movement and told Hooker and told Howard, and they ignored him. They said, now, he's, as Jim had said, they're just retreating. Yeah, they, 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 didn't, they didn't ignore it. They said, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, let him go. Great. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's a, good, it's a great question to remember terrain as an element. Terrain is, yeah. Yes, sir. 
if I can squeeze in two, maybe. One is, um, could you comment on um, Hooker's injury and the impact it right. had we on didn't decision get to that. making? Yeah. Hooker and, has a pillar fall on his head or a pillar fall out on a porch fall on his head, right? What's okay, that's one. And, and quickly, too, um, a lot of there's always a lot of focus on Jackson's flanking maneuver. Um, Warren, I think, in his report, which I believe was about 10 days after the battle, seemed to minimize that and say, although the 11th was routed, it, it was shored up and it wasn't destroyed. Um, and he seems to place somewhat more emphasis, as you were discussing, on the 3rd and the delays in getting out of Fredericksburg, I forget if it was Barlow or whoever it was. Okay. Second um, one's a little bit complicated, but what, do you want to do the uh, first yeah. one first? Just, the pillar, say, the pillar falling on. Yeah, well, I was going to, before before we let, let, no, let's not, John. Let's not do before we're running out of time. Let's yeah, do we're running out the injury first. Yeah. Well, I, well, I was going to say one of the other issues is that issue that Jim brilliantly talks about in his uh, in his book about the drinking. Was he on the wagon? Was Hooker on the wagon? And Jim makes the brilliant point that he really needed some liquid courage at that time. So, but, anyway. but are you, John? Are you maintaining that he fell on the pillar as opposed to <laughs> falling on him? That's an interesting supposition. Interesting supposition. <laughs> well, during the fighting on the morning of uh, May third, <laughs> that I talked about a moment ago, Hooker has his headquarters at the Chancellor Mansion, and he's standing on the front porch about a mile from the Confederate lines. So it's within artillery range of the Confederates. Uh, and a Confederate cannonball hits the pillar, uh, holding up the canopy over this porch, and the roof falls on Hooker's head. Yeah. And he's unconscious for uh, several minutes. Yeah. And might have uh, taken himself out of command, right? Well, he was, uh, the question is, uh, should he have remained in command right. or not? He suffers what clearly was a pretty severe concussion. Uh, and when he comes, uh, and wh while he's out, and as he's coming to, he's vomiting on the ground and so on. He's still, he's clearly not with it. Uh, some of uh, Darius Couch and and, um, and and some of the other uh, 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 corps commanders uh, tried to persuade Jonathan Letterman, who's the medical director of the Army of the Potomac, to rule that Hooker is no longer competent to command. Uh, but Letterman, you know. He didn't feel that he had that power right. to do so, and, and Hooker refuses to yield command. Uh, and part of the speculation is that if he that if he had yielded command, Darius Couch, who would have taken over, he was a senior corps commander, uh, was eager to counterattack against mm -hmm. the Confederates. But instead, Hooker orders gives the orders to pull back to a new defensive position, and then two days later, of course, to retreat back across the office. It's interesting. There were no heroic renditions of the porch falling on no. Hooker, as there are many, many depictions of Lee and Jackson's last fateful last meeting, which I'll show you at the end, and, and of course, Stonewall being killed by friendly fire, or shot by friendly fire and dying. I don't know if we got to the second. I think it's a little complicated. Oh, your Let's second question, the second? The, the delays in getting out from Fredericksburg, how important were they? I'm sorry, I didn't... The delays, delays in getting oh. out of Fredericksburg. Uh, well, Sedgwick uh, should have, could have shown more um, aggression and initiative in responding to Hooker's orders. So it's, it's not that Hooker's blaming of Sedgwick was entirely without foundation. Um, yeah, Sedgwick, Sedgwick probably didn't perform up to what Hooker's expectations, and, and he was a little bit slow. 
but he, he did finally carry the position and come in on, on partway on, on Lee's rear until Lee again, of course, divides his army and eventually and counterattacks and eventually drives Sedgwick back across the river. Just, just maybe one, one point I'd, I'd like to make, too, in, in fairness to Hooker, consider this is happening in May. The Battle of Gettysburg is just a couple of months later in July. Hooker loses his command, but I think it's fair to say that that's Hooker's army, the army that he brought together uh, that's fighting for Meade. Now, I'm not saying that if Hooker had stayed as general, the same thing would have happened. It's, it, you know, that's what it was. At what Gettysburg. It Who knows? But I think in all fairness to Hooker, we at least have to give him, give him that credit. For bringing uh, the army to the point where... To the point where they were able command. to... Right, exactly. Well, it's an interesting moment. We'll, we'll, we'll close with this. Yeah. Hooker wants to continue fighting. Lincoln uses that the R word again, rashness. He doesn't want any rashness. And Lincoln, I think, is almost schizophrenic about this result. He wants him to pursue. He wants him not to do it. He doesn't want an ox to be caught on a fence and be gored by dogs in the rear and in the front. And when he sees, when he hears about the casualties, he says, my God, what will the country say? Will the country. What will the country say? And, and at the same time, we have this myth developing that is, there's Meade who becomes the successor on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg. And we have this astonishingly strong legend. The last meeting of, of Lee and Jackson, the, the, the great commander and his lieutenant, a painting by E.B.D. Julio, which was one of Mark Twain's favorite paintings of the Civil War. He said, the only problem is we don't know whether Lee is asking Jackson what his plans are or how his family is. <laughs> or whether he can get him a cup of coffee. Twain <laughs> wrote this wonderful riff on this, <laughs> on this, on this picture. Um, we have actually covered what happens next in our Gettysburg talks, but we will be back soon to talk about more actions of the war. You've been a wonderful audience, and we thank you as always. Harold Holzer, John Marzalek, and James McPherson, you've done it again. <laughs> and we are looking forward to having you back over and over again. There will be the book signing, just a reminder. And we thank you all so much for all your membership, your support, and for coming to all these programs. Have a great night. <laughs> <laughs>